Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever. And me, Taylor McGilvery. And myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Last week, British Columbia became the first jurisdiction in North America to legalize the possession of small quantities of hard drugs, which means no criminal penalties for carrying small amounts of street drugs like crystal meth. This move is part of a big idea called harm reduction. So this week, we're asking how much could drug decriminalization help with harm reduction? Hi, Hakik. Welcome to The Dose. Hi, Brian. Were you surprised that BC was the first jurisdiction to do it? No, I wasn't surprised. I mean, you would expect that the changes would come where the changes are most urgent, and uh, they are very, very urgent in British Columbia and in in my province of Alberta. Um, But this is a federal issue, and we would hope to see federal leadership on this issue and not passing the buck off to provinces. A lot of stuff for us to talk about. But before we begin, can you give us a hi, my name is? Tell us what you do and where you do it. Sure. Uh, My name is Hakik Virani. I'm a specialist physician in public health and addiction medicine and a clinical associate professor here at the University of Alberta. So let's get down to the nuts and bolts of BC's plan to decriminalize possession of hard drugs. What drugs are we talking about and how much? So as I understand it, we're talking about um, opioid drugs like fentanyl and heroin Stimulants like cocaine, crack cocaine, methamphetamine, uh, party drugs like ecstasy. So basically drugs that you would find um, people having to buy on the street because they're illegal. Uh, Small amounts of those drugs would be decriminalized, meaning that if you were found with an amount of two and a half grams or less of a combined uh, amount of these drugs, uh, you would not be charged, arrested, but you would not have your drugs confiscated if you were found with those small amounts of drugs. How could this plan help reduce the risky use of drugs, at least for some people? Well, Brian, a a particular story comes to mind of a patient of mine at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, This was an Indigenous woman, a young Indigenous mom, who finally found work in Edmonton prior to the pandemic. She was working uh, in hospitality. She had a a cleaning job that she was progressing at and had already seen some advancement in her wage and in her position. She was really proud of having a a nice place for her and her daughter. She brought her mom to the city from Reserve to help take care of her daughter while she worked. And at the beginning of the pandemic, unfortunately, she was in an industry that was uh, deeply affected. She lost her job and she found herself um, struggling to make ends meet and went, went back to survival sex work, which is what she knew. And the challenge of working in that traumatic industry is that, you know, she was remembering women that she knew who were missing and murdered. She was worried about that potentially happening to her. You know, she, at the beginning of the pandemic, with, you know, the streets being quite bare, she was worried about um, sticking out when she was going from place to place. She didn't have as much um, leeway to negotiate where she would have interactions with clients. And with all that stress uh, and re-traumatization, she began to use drugs again. And when she would procure her drugs, she would procure them in amounts that um, she didn't have to uh, interact with drug dealers as often. So she would carry, you know, larger amounts to supply herself for days or weeks at a time. 
And because she was worried about encountering police when she was going from place to place, she would often use more than intended so that she wouldn't have too much of her drugs confiscated if she was arrested. And so she used in more risky ways and had non-fatal overdose um, as a result of that. She also used alone more likely because of isolation related to the pandemic, but also related to the risk of being arrested if she was found with other people using drugs. Thankfully, uh, she was able to get access to emergency income supports, and we helped her navigate that situation, and she was able to extract herself from survival sex work. But you can see how this story could have ended in a different way, with many, many connections to the risks that come with a really bad drug policy. You've talked about using alone. You've talked about uh, uh, using in unsafe ways. And one that comes to mind is is using dirty needles, contaminated needles. Um, is there any evidence of a direct link between criminalization and and getting HIV or getting hepatitis C, for instance, from contaminated needles? One of the examples that's held out of successful decriminalization policies is um, Portugal. And the reason that Portugal found themselves in a position to consider decriminalization was because of uh, increasing incidence of HIV and hepatitis C um, when poor quality heroin was coming from, I believe, Afghanistan and Pakistan back in the uh, mid-90s. And when... Uh, they adopted a decriminalization policy uh, and people were no longer arrested and thrown in jail for first encounters of small drug possession. They did indeed see a decrease in uh, the transmission of bloodborne pathogens like HIV. So I think that there's, you know, good uh, ecological evidence at least that shows when people are less afraid of encounters with police and arrest and incarceration, um, the likelihood of taking healthcare services up on offers to reduce risk increases. The province and advocates asked the federal government in Ottawa for a 4.5 gram threshold. You mentioned that the, the actual threshold uh, is 2.5 grams. So what kind of a reaction are you hearing from users to the 2.5 gram limit that was announced? You know, in order to execute a good public policy in any endeavor, but certainly in this one, you really need to engage and listen to the expertise of the intended beneficiaries of that policy. And in this case, it's people who use drugs. And they're saying that 2.5 grams is too low, not because they want to carry around more drugs, but because the most common amount that drugs are sold in is what's called an eight ball or an eighth of an ounce, which is 3.5 grams. So most people buy drugs in amounts that are more than 2.5 grams, not because they use a lot, but because that's the way the market works. In addition, the people who purchase small amounts of drugs are those people who are, I believe, least likely to have a harmful outcome from drug use. So people who are socially excluded, um, who experience poverty and houselessness and are most vulnerable to overdose are also more likely to be carrying more than 2.5 grams and not be drug traffickers, but may have to procure in amounts that are enough to share with one or two uh, friends or family. People who are living in remote circumstances, like on reserve, Indigenous people, are more likely to have to procure larger amounts so they don't have to come to places to purchase drugs as often. Um, and so that tells us that this limit 
may actually increase the inequity that occurs inside the communities of people who use drugs. So the people who are most likely to be harmed by bad drug policy continue to be most likely to be harmed by bad drug policy. So um, people in uh, racialized minorities um, and people in marginalized socioeconomic classes. So, Hakika, as I said off the top, you know, I said we were going to talk about, about harm reduction, and I want to get into that now because certainly a lot of people think that decriminalization fits kind of hand in glove, is kind of a complementary policy to harm reduction. So where does harm reduction fit in to what we're talking about right now? Yeah, so harm reduction is a practical, life-saving approach um, that's centered around a patient's or a person's own circumstances and their own goals and needs. And one of the most significant harms that we're trying to reduce amongst people who use drugs is the social harms of being incarcerated and having your future ruined by carrying around being saddled with a criminal record for the rest of your life. People who use drugs lose their children, um, not because of the risks of drug use, but because of the risks of being excluded from your children as a result of your drug use and criminal drug policies. A harm reduction um, worker will ask a patient what, or, or an individual who uses drugs, what's the most important risk that you'd like to reduce and how do we help you? And oftentimes they'll say, you can't help me. I'm worried about walking out of here and getting arrested. And so in order for people to feel safe to avail themselves of harm reduction services, that specter of being incarcerated or having to um, be roughed up by police um, really needs to go away. So how much does the existing plan for decriminalization um, reduce the risk of harm? I think I, I, I'm guessing that your answer is going to be a mixed picture. It, it is a mixed picture. I mean, I think that if you're somebody who, you know, is an investment banker who likes to do a couple of rails of blow and play poker with your buddies on the weekend, you weren't really at huge risk of, of encounters with police to begin with, but now you're at even lower risk because you're likely to be carrying a small amount of drug on the weekend to go party with your friends. If you're an Indigenous person or a Black person in Canada, you're at the moment, well, if you're Indigenous, you're about nine times more likely in some places to be arrested for simple drug possession. And if you're Black, you're up to five times more likely in some Canadian regions than a white person to be arrested for simple drug possession. And given the limits that are being contemplated for this drug decriminalization exemption, I think that individuals in these groups will continue to be at high risk of harm from bad drug policy. I, I do worry uh, about that. I do worry that the advice of people who use drugs and their advocates has not been heeded. And in fact, the 2.5 grams um, is one that my understanding is was suggested um, or agreed to by police and not by the intended beneficiaries of this policy. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. What other misgivings or concerns do you have about the uh, 
decriminalization of uh, possession of small quantities of hard drugs? The policy will not be uh, introduced until the beginning of next calendar year. I can't understand why one would wait seven months to introduce a policy that could save some lives. So that's a, a major misgiving. I think the other is that the illegal drug market adapts extremely quickly to changes in their environment. When uh, there were abrupt changes in the way that physicians were prescribing opioids, the drug market adapted from pharmaceutical, diverted pharmaceutical opioids to imported heroin and fentanyls. When fentanyl was feeling too big to traffic, we saw the market transition to fentanyl analogs. When supply chains were interrupted between China and Canada at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw more local synthesis of fentanyl, fentanyl analogs, research chemicals, and now for the first time in my memory, mixtures of opioids with non-human benzodiazepines in drugs that are being sold as opioids on the street. And with limits like 2.5 grams, I do worry that it'll be an incentive for the drug market to adapt yet again to package opioids in smaller amounts, which means more potent or more toxic molecules. And I think that we'll see some experimentation in BC by the illegal drug market to see if they can adapt yet again. And that worries me too. So as you've, as you've already suggested quite plainly, the bigger problem is the toxic supply of street drugs and you know, how to address that. It really is. And, you know, oftentimes you'll hear terms interchanged like overdose epidemic and addiction epidemic. And those phrases don't mean the same thing. We do know there's an overdose epidemic. In last calendar year, about one Canadian almost every hour dying from fatal overdose. But we don't know that there's been an increase in the number of people with substance use conditions. Everything that I can tell is that the prevalence of addiction in Canada is about the same as it was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. The risk is the likelihood of death if you use illegal drugs, and that can happen whether or not you have addiction. So it really is, as you said, a function of the extremely toxic supply, which is directly related to prohibitionist policies. So we have to kind of come to some sort of conclusion. Should other jurisdictions adopt the approach that was pioneered by British Columbia? Well, I think, yes, I think that they should adopt a decriminalization approach and not just because we're in the midst of an overdose epidemic. And one thing that worries me about this policy is contextualizing it in that picture. If by some miracle we find ourselves out of an overdose epidemic, I don't think that that means we should go back to criminalized drug policy. You know, we have to understand and appreciate that people experience some benefit to their quality of life when they use drugs. And that's why many people start to use substances, whether that's legal ones like alcohol or caffeine or nicotine or now cannabis or illegal ones like opioids or cocaine or methamphetamine people do experience some benefit and it would be a lie to say that it's always a problem um, to use illegal drugs. People, human beings for millennia, have tried to alter their perception of their environments inside themselves and outside themselves. And we send them to jail if they do that in a way that we disagree with. 
And that strikes me as inhumane. So if it is a fundamental human rights issue or an injustice that needs to be corrected, and if that is why we're decriminalizing drugs, it shouldn't matter if the drug supply is toxic or not. We just shouldn't send people to jail for doing something that is not harming anybody else. When it does harm somebody else, obviously there's you know punishments that should be levied. Um, and that's one of the reasons why in the BC example, you know, the exemption doesn't apply to areas where there's children or if a minor is operating a motor vehicle where there's drugs found. But when it comes to punishing people just for using an illegal substance and punishing them by sending them to jail and giving them a criminal record that keeps them from working in future or keeps them from having contact with their children in future, that's something that needs to be addressed through and through, not just for the next three years. What other harm reduction strategies do you think could make a difference? Well, I think that, you know, we've done a fairly good job in my province, at least, of offering take-home naloxone programs um, so that people who are using drugs with somebody else can rescue a person if they have an adverse event. I think that ongoing provision of sterile syringes for people who use drugs is extremely important, not just for them, but also to public health. I think that we should think of um, abstinence-based addiction recovery as a form of harm reduction as well on the continuum of services that should be offered to people with addiction. I think that outreach and um, housing resources and resources to navigate the legal system for people who have found themselves in trouble for using drugs is a really important harm reduction measure as well. And really the people who should be deciding what resources and what services are most helpful uh, for people who use drugs are people who use drugs. And they do tell us. All we have to do is ask. You know, it took me a, a number of years to recognize that my job in addiction medicine wasn't necessary to help people stop using drugs, but just to help people, period. Um, and they'll tell you what would be most valuable help to them. It's interesting that you say that because that that is a you know that is certainly a powerful idea that's still in the minds of a lot of parents who might fear that this change that we're talking about will encourage their kids to use substances. So what do you say to them? Yeah, well, look, I'm a parent too. Um, I'm a parent. One of my children is a preteen, so you know we're having conversations about what do you do when you feel stressed, when you feel lonely or sad, when you don't feel like your quality of life is what you would like it to be. And I don't want my kid to use drugs or alcohol, and I also don't want my kid to find um, that his quality of life depends on other risky activities. I don't want him to go skydiving. I don't want him to ride a motorcycle. I don't want um, my daughter to spend hours and hours in the sun or my son to do that. And, you know, if they ask me to take a trip to a place where there's malaria, I'll be worried about that. But we use harm reduction in so many different domains. Helmets for snowboarders and skydivers and SPF lotions and sunglasses for people who worship the sun. Um, you know, you might have a patient who's got asthma who also loves their cat and so inhaled Steroids for those people is a form of harm reduction as well. And so harm reduction is not an invitation to engage in risky activities. It's a way to make sure that, you know, if you're a parent, if your child 
does engage in risky activities, you may not be happy about it, but you don't want them to die from those activities. And you don't want their future to be compromised by an arrest or for them to be traumatized by encounters with police or for them to be caged up in a jail for seeking out a change in their quality of life by engaging in an activity that carries some risk. Our job isn't to increase the risk. That doesn't change the likelihood of engaging in the behavior. That just changes the likelihood of a really bad outcome from engaging in a behavior. Well, Dr. Hakik Varani, you, this is obviously a very complex issue, but you have helped us to surf through it in a way that I feel as if I understand it a lot better than I did before I met you. Well, thanks for having this conversation, Brian. You're right, it's, it's complex and it's not one we should scratch the surface on or we'll make mistakes. Dr. Hakik Varani is an addiction medicine and public health physician in Edmonton. Here's your dose of smart advice. Contrary to popular belief, criminalizing substance use doesn't reduce the likelihood that people will use drugs. It is more likely to lead people to use substances in ways that are more likely to harm them and others. Those harms include using larger quantities, using opioids alone, and sharing needles. Harm reduction is an evidence-based approach to substance use that seeks to reduce the health and social harms associated with addiction and drug use, without necessarily requiring people who use substances to abstain from using them. Examples of harm reduction policies include supervised injection sites, needle exchange programs, and making naloxone kits widely and easily available. In the context of harm reduction, the idea behind decriminalizing the possession of small quantities of drugs like fentanyl, crystal meth, and ecstasy is to reduce the stigma of drug use. Eliminating the risk of incarceration and reducing the fear of being stopped by police will hopefully discourage risky behaviors like using contaminated needles and encourage more people to seek treatment for addiction. In Portugal, after decriminalization of possession of small quantities of heroin, the incidence of HIV and hepatitis C went down. More people are dying of opioid overdoses than ever. It points to a bigger problem, the ever-increasing supply of drugs on the street. Addressing that issue should help stem the tide of deaths by leading users to safer alternatives. Because this is a new policy, its ultimate impact is unknown and will have to be studied carefully. If you have topics you'd like covered or questions answered, tweet me at NightShiftMD, at CBC Podcasts, or at CBC White Coat, hashtag TheDoseCBC. Our email address is thedose at cbc.ca. You can find The Dose on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, why not rate us five stars so more people will know about us? This edition of The Dose was produced by Amina Zoffer. Our senior producer is Colleen Ross. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. See your healthcare provider for medical advice. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.